Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for the invitation um, to speak here. Uh, so when I was uh, when I was asked to speak, I, I said. Ah, okay, so I haven't ever interacted with historians, and let's go see um, what this uh, field is all about. <laughs> um, and so, to be fair, the last time I read history was in secondary school, right? So it's, I'm a completely uninformed idiot. Um, uh, so take everything that I say with that uh, pinch of salt. Um, and uh, so I, I, I thought I, sh I really should preface everything that I say with, with these kind of caveats that it's not in any way principled at all whatsoever. Um, and I was asked to speak you know, a few weeks back, but then got busy, as uh, we all do. And then, so this is like last minute thinking of you know, what, what, what big data has, has been all about. So and I do big data every single day. But you know, when you're doing something, you never stop to think about the historical perspective at all. So it's actually been kind of informative for myself as well. But you know, hopefully, it's going to add um, something to this discussion. Um, uh, but if not, here's 20 minutes of your life. <laughs> um, OK, so uh, and then the, the, the other um, kind of big caveat is that Whenever you talk about big data, it's about what is big, right? So um, I've, I've, we've got a ESRC project where I'm participating with philosophers, ethicists, uh, and sociologists, and so forth. They go off and interview uh, 30 people in depth. Uh, over a few years, and then they say, yes, that's big data for us. Uh, whereas what I do is I take a social graph of, let's say, Twitter, look at a few million uh, tweets, and then kind of make overall sense of it. Uh, and that's big data for me, uh, but I don't get to go into the same level of detail that the sociologist would do in their 30 interviews. And so there is this kind of tension that happens. Uh, and when we talk about big data and whether it's big, it all depends on the application. And so, you know, uh, big data is just data, really uh, speaking. Um, and, and also, uh, in the brief amount of thinking that I did over a few, let's say, couple of hours or something, <laughs> uh, I didn't actually get answers. And I don't believe there are answers in the field for many of the uh, issues that we have right now. And that's possibly because. Uh, big data, or at least the thinking about big data, has been quite new. The next talk is going to talk about how big data is not really that new at all. Uh, and uh, you know, hopefully, between the two of us, we're going to um, address this from completely different perspectives. Um, and also, I come from computing. Right? So computing is um, uh, as new as 50 years old, basically. Uh, the first um, successful computer was actually built in the Cambridge Computer Laboratory here in the UK. Um, there was a previous one uh, in the US uh, built, and this was the first, second um, actual computer, but this was the first successful stored program computer. Um, and, and the point that I want to make is that, OK, so the, even if you take a historical perspective, it's going to be a very short historical perspective. But although we talk about computing as computing, it's not just about computing. It's actually always been about data. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons why computing became as successful as it's been is because of this concept called stored programs. And the idea is this. Um, if, you, if you take, uh, let's say, a, a, an app, even a simple app, that app is actually something which has been uh, created by a single author and then copied onto different mobile phones, right? Uh, so it's, a, it's an app which is stored as data and then being interpreted 
and processed, and the data of the program is actually used to process other data. So there's a meta aspect to it. So computing, even the computing aspect of computing has been about storing the data and storing the program, and this concept of stored programs has been instrumental uh, in making computing what it is. And in fact, if you look at the acronym that was adopted for uh, this Cambridge computer, um, uh, it's, it's called the uh, EDSAC, uh, is, is, is the way it's referred to usually, uh, but uh, EDSAC actually stands for Electronic Delay Storage Automatic Calculator. So it's, the storage aspect was very critical. Um, and uh, possibly one of the more revolutionary aspects of uh, EDSAC was this idea of using a delay line. Uh, so, so the idea was that you put in some information on one end, and there's a mercury delay, delay line. So imagine this information going all the way through the delay line, and at the other end, after a few, uh, after a small amount of time, it can be read out. So the way it's, uh, it's, it's captured throughout the duration of the program when the program is running is by feeding that information back into the input. And then after a little delay, it can be read again. And, after, and again, it's get, it gets fed back and so forth. So the, the mercury delay lines which were used to store data um, had to be refilled and refilled and refilled all the time. So there was never this concept of permanent storage. Uh, and I get back to that shortly uh, because uh, now, of course, um, we have permanent storage and it has all sorts of implications for us. And I take this example of uh, EDSAC uh, because um, there's, uh, uh, th there's a notion of scale which continuously plays a role in how we think about computing. Okay, so when EDSAC was first designed, um, they made provision for a 1024 locations. 1024 seems like an arbitrary number, but if you think about it, it's actually two to the power 10 and everything in computing is you know, one or zero, right? so it's, it's, it's binary. Um, so there are 1024 locations, only 512 were implemented, and the rest was for I don't know, version two or whatever. Um, and uh, 1024 locations, is, uh, so each tweet uh, is about you know, 144 characters, right? So 1024 locations is simply four tweets. And that was the extent of the storage that was available in the first computer. And very important problems were solved by then. So, so the, uh, Ronald Fisher, uh, who was uh, the father of statistics, uh, uh, had a differential equations that, that needed to be solved, uh, and this machine was used to solve the differential equation and, and ended up being uh, in a paper. Swinerton Dyer, which, who was a famous mathematician, used this to uh, kind of prove some of his results, uh, uh, early results uh, on his uh, conjectures. And uh, so, so, so today, of course, 1024 locations doesn't get you anywhere at all. Even your tiniest app uh, <laughs> uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't fit into 1024 locations. And this is a fallacy, this is a, this is a problem that everybody has of figuring, of, 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 of kind of forecasting what's going to happen in the future. And with technology, um, it's, this, uh, it's this scale, the, 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 the rapidity with which uh, things grow uh, is, is something that we as humans find it very difficult to get used to. And it's not just you know, ordinary people, it's also people who were quite, kind of quite present uh, uh, and kind of uh, at least um, successful in, uh, in getting things out. Bill Gates, uh, father of Windows and uh, father of Microsoft um, and MS-DOS. <laughs> um, uh, said a long time back, and this could be a myth, uh, he has since denied it or he has since you know, qualified what he said before, but he's reputed to have said um, 640k of memory should be sufficient for anybody. Right? Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and this was 
this is something which was which should have been sufficient in 1981 because that was a big step forward Be before the, the PC came with the 640KF memory, the IBM PC. Uh, the, the previous uh, computers had about 64KF memory, so uh, this was a 10 times increase in the amount of memory that was available, so you could obviously do many, many more interesting things. And suddenly, um, you know, it seems like, okay, we have as much as we would want to do. So to someone who has grown up on 64KF memory, 640K of memory seems like, wow, we've got so much, what can we do with this? T.J. Watson, um, who was one of the most successful um, CEOs of IBM uh, of all time, uh, and for whom the IBM Research Center is named, um, uh, is, uh, said at one point when, when the first mainframes were being designed, he said there's a mar market for about maybe five computers. Right? Um, so, <laughs> uh, and, and he ended up sending many, many, uh, selling many, many uh, mainframes to many, many banks, and they're still running today. And uh, there are you know, uh, simulations of ma mainframes going on and so forth. So there's, there's a life uh, that technology takes, uh, uh, and there's, uh, uh, the, the course of evolution of technology is something which is very hard to predict. And uh, some things succeed, some things don't succeed. And when they succeed, they succeed beyond all imagination. And that's something that we need to uh, keep in mind. Um, so the very, so at the high level, the big takeaway of my talk, if I want to give anything at all, is this. It's that we don't understand scale. Um, and because we don't understand scale, um, we make wrong decisions sometimes uh, and uh, wrong predictions. Uh, and scale matters in two ways. One is in, in, in the obvious way that what is an ideal solution for 1024 location, uh, an ideal solution for 640K locations of memory uh, is not going to be the ideal solution for when you have 4 GB of RAM or 10 GB of RAM. Right? Uh, so different solutions become optimal or non-optimal at different points in scale. So things come in and out of fashion. So uh, you might suggest some new technology today, which might fail completely. 10 years time, it may become successful. You might suggest some technology which is extremely successful today, but its shelf life may be no more than a couple of years. And this tension is something that we continuously have to deal with uh, throughout uh, uh, the evolution of technology, especially in the research field where we are trying to say, here's where the next step should be for computer science. Here's where the next step should be for big data. And then we pu publish tons and tons of papers, many of which don't you know, end up seeing the light of day, which is kind of frustrating for us as researchers. Uh, but that, I think, goes hand in hand with this notion of scale and what is successful and what is not successful. And the second kind of um, uh, reason why scale matters is because of this uh, law called Moore's law. So Moore, uh, Andrew Moore was uh, one of the first presidents of Intel, and he quickly recognized that uh, in roughly the space of an, a year and a half or so, the computing power kind of doubled. Okay? Uh, and what this means is that, again, um, solutions which were deemed impossible, oh, here's a, a nice new uh, expensive uh, way of doing things, uh, which would uh, have not worked two years before, is suddenly going to become feasible. Right? So this is the reason why 64K um, got upgraded to 640K, and then suddenly Bill Gates felt like he could do a lot more than he could with the old computers that he was used to. Uh, and just to illustrate the notion of scale, 
here's how it goes. Uh, this is this is an infographic that I took from just from off the web, but you, you can find tons and tons of such uh, images. Um, so we are somewhere over there, uh, and notice that the span here is just 10 years, right? Um, and 90% of the world's data was created in the last two years. And by 2020, you're going to have a 50 times growth in the amount of data that's available, right? So clearly, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's something. So, so the point uh, that's difficult for us to understand is that at, at any time point in the present, we are always going to be at that knee point where it's always taking off. Taking off right? So it's very hard for us to crane our necks up and see where we are headed. So with that kind of an introduction, I want to touch upon four um, different related problems. Uh, in, each, in each case, I'm going to take I describe one kind of semi-technical thing, um, and then think about what the lessons might be uh, for that. So the first problem is representing data. Um, and how are we going to represent data? Do, do we want to have a very rigid uh, prescribed structure? Uh, or do we want to have a completely unstructured, messy way of dealing with data? Second problem is uh, processing data. Where do you want to process data? Do you want to keep it close to you? Do you want to keep it in the cloud? And what are the kind of trade-offs that happen between that? Uh, and the third one uh, is about preserving data. So if you think about it from a historical perspective, each bit that you have is, could be a source of primary information uh, for someone 10,000 years from now, 5,000 years from now, even a couple of hundred years from now. How do we make these bits be reliable? And in fact, is it a problem at all? Uh, and if so, then you know, what are the problems? Uh, and finally, related to preservation is this notion of protection. Uh, and I want to make the distinction between preservation and protection, because preservation, you actually want to give access to everyone. Um, whereas with protection, you're afraid of what might happen if that data were misused uh, in, in some way. So uh, let's go on to the first question of uh, pre uh, representing data. So this, was, this has been a, a, a long-standing issue. When, when you have a large amount of data, the kind of processing that you can do depends on how exactly it's represented. So one way of representing data, and here's, here's a canonical example um, of, uh, of data uh, of, of, of a customer and his bank account, his or her bank accounts. Uh, and it, a kind of a natural way of representing it is, is a hierarchical information. So you have a customer who might have uh, a checking account, and you, uh, who might want to check accounts, and you might have a checking account and a savings account. And uh, data associated with the checking account is kept separately from the data for the savings account. But both of them are somehow related to the customer. Right? So you can have this hierarchy of organization. Now, um, this is a very nice way of representing things. This is kind of how you represent things as folders and folders within folders in your file system, for instance. Right. Um, that, that was kind of the original way of uh, de dealing with uh, data in databases. Um, but then the problem was that every single application had its own hierarchical structure. And a program which was developed for processing one kind of data cannot be directly used for processing other kinds of data because the hierarchy needs to be defined and the way you process this hierarchy uh, depends on how the hierarchy is defined. So you need to redefine and reprogram uh, every single uh, application. 
Now along came a guy called uh, Edgar Korn, um, and he said, let's make everything simple, straightforward. Let's make everything into tabular columns. Okay, so uh, here's, uh, here's one where you have a table for customers, you have a table for accounts, uh, and so you have a customer 1001 who is Mr. Smith, and 1001, uh, if you want to look up all the accounts that 1001 has, uh, that Mr. Smith has, and you need to go back and see, okay, one, Mr. Smith is 1001 uh, in the first table up there, customer table, come down, <coughs> the accounts table, and then see what are all the accounts that 1001 has. And there you go, you find two accounts, one is a checking account and one is a savings account. Right. Um, this is a slightly more, um, less straightforward way of, uh, of processing because you need to look up multiple tables, you need to uh, uh, you, you, you need to actually link across tables. But the advantage of this is that you actually have a single way of dealing with things. Everything is a table. And because everything is a table, you can actually define uh, and uh, design new kinds of processing uh, for data. Uh, and this is, this is the basis of relational databases uh, deep to the articles that you might have heard of. And this was a kind of the second big revolution, probably the biggest uh, commercial success that we've had uh, in, uh, in, in computer science, uh, being databases as a, as, a, as a large industry. And then along came this uh, idea of, that you, uh, of, of linked data. You can actually have, rather than um, describe everything to be a single table, you could create a node representing different things, and then link from one node to the other node. And this is kind of the um, theoretical basis for the World Wide Web. So I create a database, uh, which is actually a document. Uh, it could be, let's say, the Hansard uh, a collection of documents, uh, which can link to other documents, which could link to Twitter, which could link to uh, various other websites where there's other information to be available. Okay, so it's a over the years, we've had these uh, at least three different ways of representing data, and I'm creating a very grossly simplified caricature, uh, but this kind of uh, helps me think about uh, what we sh how, should, how we should be representing data and what the, what the lessons are for us. So the first thing that I want to, uh, that I take away from this is that uh, the need for processing and uh, it trumps uh, the, uh, the, uh, the need for organization of data. So if you're able to process data better, then uh, the value in the data is realized much more uh, easily. Okay, uh, and, and so this was, uh, I think, the reason for why the relational model succeeded so much because you had this uh, commercial program called the database, the relational database, which could then be applied to multiple different uh, um, uh, application domains, and therefore you could realize data not just from banks, but also from uh, you know, supermarkets and grocery stores and whatever. So you could apply the same technology to multiple different uh, domains. And the second big insight, uh, one which uh, a community called Hypertext has had for a long time, uh, and one which uh, I think Tim Berners-Lee kind of imbibed and made popular and made successful was this notion of linking and openness. So instead of owning everything that you have, if you have, uh, if you create a, a, a an equal platform where one piece of data can be linked with another piece of data, then a, a larger value can be realized by linking multiple different data sources together. 
however, in, in both, in, in all three cases, uh, really, um, the, the corralling of the data to make sense of data, making, to, to find the data that you want is, is really the crucial bit. So in, in the relational system, uh, you have this mechanism of finding data by looking up one table and then uh, using that, uh, using pointer from one table to look up into the other table. So here you have the customer ID, uh, 1001, used to look up uh, the accounts table to find what accounts uh, Mr. Smith owns. Um, and in the web, you have search. So without Google, you wouldn't have had the kind of success that the web currently enjoys. So it's very important to uh, be able to have a simple and regular model. And it's also been very important for us to be able to make sense of data. So the second uh, kind of issue that I want to touch upon is this notion of processing. Uh, and this has been primarily de defined by how much processing power is available at that point in time uh, and what processing needs we have. Okay. So initially, uh, there was this notion of uh, a thin client, and then it became something known as a fat client, uh, and then it, the current fashion seems to be, again, thin clients. And I'm going to describe what thin and uh, fat or thin and rich clients uh, are. So there are these two different terms for uh, referring to different clients. So the thin client is something where the functionality on the client side, on your uh, on the end where the user is sitting, interacting with the data, uh, is uh, that's the client side. And then there's a server side, which is the other end where there's additional processing taking place. So in the th on the thin client, you would normally not have much functionality at all on the client side. On the rich client, you would actually have most of the functionality being on the client itself. Now, why would you want to choose thin clients? So initially, the, the idea was that um, the clients that you had, the PCs and the desktops that you had, were not powerful enough uh, to solve uh, the real needs of the day. And therefore, you had a mainframe which was as large as a room. Uh, and obviously, it couldn't be sitting on your desktop. Uh, your desktop would it wouldn't be a desktop, it would be a room top or something. Uh, <laughs> so you'd, you'd end up um, uh, having this mainframe be somewhere in the basement and have a little screen on which you work and do your day-to-day -day activities. Then suddenly, Moore's law comes into uh, effect, and uh, there's more processing that can happen uh, on the client itself. Uh, and this is uh, more uh, feasible and, 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 and also offers additional advantages, such as it's more usable. So if you have a, a Microsoft Excel, it's probably easier for you to work with than uh, working with some kind of a database, which is in a room that's uh, you know, far below where you're sitting. Uh, so this led to the rise of a desktop-based databases, and much information is actually ended up uh, getting locked in these individual databases. Now, what this ended up creating was a, a set of separate databases. And if you think about uh, internal histories of companies, there's a lot of data that's uh, locked on people's desktops. Uh, and I don't know what my colleague has. My colleague doesn't know what I have. Uh, and clearly, there's no scope for linking data together. And this, again, creates a problem. Now, 
what we've ended up uh, doing again is saying, okay, we can maybe re-centralize the data rather than having the databases be separate, being uh, on the client side. Let's re-centralize the data, move them to a data center somewhere in the cloud, as they call it. Uh, and uh, this also offers additional processing power. It offers nomadic access, so I can access uh, from my laptop, I can access from my desktop, and so forth. There's additional advantages that, uh, that, that the cloud uh, paradigm provides. Um, so from this trip, you know, going from the cloud, which was the mainframe 30, 40 years back, uh, back to uh, desktops and then back again to the cloud, which is data centers sitting in some server in California these days, has been a round trip journey that we have done. And it illustrates this uh, idea that things can go out of fashion and back into fashion and then out of fashion again. Uh, and in, uh, so if I think back about what is it that has uh, led to this change, it's one is this notion of scale and what is possible with processing uh, power at each point in time. But it's also this idea uh, that additional processing uh, f functionality often trumps convenience, right? So, uh, so the fact that you can uh, centralize data and link data across from uh, different uh, points uh, is, a, is a useful one. Now, to me, it also raises the question of uh, where should the cloud be? So what happens uh, if the data center is actually in a different country? Uh, what happens uh, if uh, that country's law doesn't really protect your data? Um, should data somehow be treated the same way as embassies are? So kind of, uh, if, you're, if your country's data happens to be in a server in the United States, does that con constitute uh, processing according to the laws of that specific country? So I, I want to briefly touch upon uh, these uh, notions of preserving data and uh, protecting data uh, before concluding. And the idea is that um, this data that we have, we've been thinking about it from a day-to-day -day perspective, but what if you want to think about it from the perspective of a thousand years from now? Now you might think that this is a trivial problem, okay? Here is a, here's a hard drive and I have data here. Uh, what could possibly happen to it, right? <laughs> um, yes, there can be fires, there can be uh, other kinds of disasters which can physically destroy a hard drive. There can even be very uh, interesting cases such as uh, a, a particle from a cosmic ray radiation can come in and uh, invert a bit from zero to a one. Uh, and uh, this can completely change the meaning of uh, uh, data, right? Uh, and errors such as this have been observed. Um, and so when, it, when it's very important pieces of record, then you probably want to make sure that it survives for historians to make sense of uh, in a long time from now. So how do you do this? So there's a very interesting project called uh, LOCKS. It stands for Lots of Copies Keep Stuff Safe. Uh, and it's exactly what you think it is. Uh, multiple different copies. But multiple different copies don't suffice uh, because it, you end up having correlated failure. So if you keep one copy here in King's, another copy in UCL, uh, if there's a bomb that falls on, nuclear bomb falls on London, all the data is gone, right? Uh, and it's the same whether it's a data center or not. Right? So you, if, you, if your data center is in California and your company is also in California, then you know, California, there's an earthquake, that's it. Um, so independent copies, the more independent you can make, uh, the more safer your data is. Uh, and then there's this notion of frequent auditing. So it's not enough to just keep the data. If you want the data to be safe, you need to keep reading it again and again. Uh, and then making sure that these kind of uh, strange cosmic events has not happened to invert the data. Um, 
Okay, so, uh, and, and then there's this idea of uh, you know, what we do with, with data in the cloud. So we trust our personal data to the cloud. Um, as I said, the cloud itself can fail spectacularly. Um, and also things that we don't think about is, what, uh, is that as technology progresses, the way we read data, the way we store data has been changing. So if you think about all the data that you have on cassette tapes, all the compilation tapes that you might have had, uh, probably don't even have a, a reader to read, read it, um, or the VHS recordings that you might have of uh, holiday vacations. Uh, if you don't have a VHS player anymore, then there goes the data. And uh, this also implies that you know we are we are strangely trusting um, entities such as Google uh, and Twitter to keep our data safe for many many years, and it's not a given that Google is going to succeed uh, and be there. And it has happened. Google has shut down many of its very popular services before. So we need to think about, if you're going to think about preserving data, we need to think about it you know, from, from, from the perspective of what would happen years from now. Um, so that, that's, that's the notion of protecting, pre preserving data, uh, and the need for keeping data safe for a long period of time. But uh, I also want to touch upon uh, this idea of uh, what happens to the data, who gets hold of the data. Uh, we, we have throwaway utterances that we're making on Twitter and social media uh, that might end up hurting uh, individuals years down the line. Uh, and and uh, so how do, we, how do we make use of this data? Who owns this data? Uh, how can, who can use this is, is, are all questions that we should be thinking about. So for instance, if you have uh, data about your genome, uh, it's something that can potentially be used to give you better access to better medicine, personalized medicine that's suited for your specific set of genes, uh, but can insurance companies somehow make use of it and give you differential pricing. So here you are, you're susceptible to some kind of cancer or something. So I'm going to charge you much, much more because you're going to be a more expensive person uh, for me to insure. Um, so uh, and, and then there have been examples such as um, the, this availability of data uh, it, it has been used for potentially unethical uh, in potentially unethical ways. So there was this example a few years back where uh, Orbitz, which is a travel website, used to take this information. So each time you make a request to a website, uh, there's uh, all sorts of uh, meta information which goes to the website, such as the browser that you're using it from, you're, you're accessing it from. Now, if it happens to be that, that the browser was from a Mac, uh, it, Orbitz decided that Mac owners are capable of paying more, so that it would show them, <laughs> it would show them um, uh, the, the websites and hotels that were uh, more expensive. And it kind of worked, so they have higher margins, so it's, it's a successful strategy for Orbitz, but it's, it's data that's being leaked about me, and it's not clear to me that, well, I might want to go to a more expensive hotel, but, but still, it's not clear to me that I should be penalized just because I'm having a Mac. So my choice of using a Mac should not impinge on you know, what kind of hotel rooms I have. So, so there's this very important issue of protecting data, which we should also be thinking about. So I think I'll conclude back with this idea that you know, we, we don't know what we are doing because we are, at the, we are always at this leak point, and we we release this data. So when Tim Berners-Lee uh, came up with this idea of HTTP, the, the hypertext uh, transfer protocol, um, 
uh, should be open, and it should have all sorts of other additional header information, such as the browser that you're accessing from, it was supposed to be useful, because different browsers have different quirks, and the way an Internet Explorer uh, renders text is different from the way Safari on Mac renders text. So therefore, uh, let's give this information to the server so that the server can make use of it in a useful ways. But it ends up, it could end up biting you uh, in other ways. Uh, and so the, the, the scope of data, the way it's getting used, um, is always, uh, um, and the way it's processed, where it's processed, are all important things that we should be thinking about. So it will stop there.